0: There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum and osmium and astatine and radium and gold, protactinium and indium and gallium and iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. We're well, welcome aboard. There's yttrium, terbium, actinium. You know, back etubium, in 1851, and and there was diobium, a wonderful iridium, uh, and silicon and silicon world's lithium, fair lithium, essentially lithium, 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 at the Great Crystal Palace in London. It was called the Great Crystal Palace Exhibit of 1851. And visitors were greeted with a 27-foot-high fountain made of four tons of pure glass. What flowed out of that fountain? If you know the answer, you give us a call at 514-790-800. You can, of course, also text your questions, comments to 514-800. And one more question for you. Uh, Italian anatomist of the 16th century, Gabriele Fallopio, described the fallopian tubes. These, of course, lead from the ovaries to the uterus. He also invented a linen sheath soaked in medicinal substances, which was then dried. What was this supposed to be used for? So we're looking for the invention by Gabriele Fallopio, the man who first described the fallopian tubes, and he invented this linen sheath soaked in uh, herbal substances. Actually, it was dried. Question is, what was it supposed to be used for? So 514-790-0800, or you can text to five one four eight hundred, and of course you can ask whatever question comes into your mind. It doesn't have to be an answer to one of one of these. Well, as you know, in the U.S. Uh, There is a stink going on about uh, abortion, particularly the uh, drug, the medical abortion drug, Mifepristone, uh, which uh, a Texas judge has said is not safe to use and he wants it banned. This is ridiculous. This drug has been used safely for over 23 years The complication rate is minute. So to suggest that it should be taken off the market because of safety is just scientific nonsense. Now, if he has an opinion that uh, abortion is not to his liking, fine. That can be expressed. But scientifically, the drug is uh, as safe as any medication can be. It's called Mifepristone, and um, it was originally named RU486. Now, it's interesting why that name. This uh, this uh, drug, Mifepristone, was first synthesized in 1980 by chemists at the French pharmaceutical company roussel Uclaf. hence the RU. And it was the 38,486 compound synthesized since the company was founded in 1949. And it is that 38,486 that was shortened to 486. So that's, this is why originally it was codenamed RU486. Um, originally this drug was not, uh, was not designed to be uh, a medical abortion drug. It was designed to treat Cushing syndrome. Now, Cushing syndrome is a condition that is caused by long-term use of steroids, such as prednisone, or too much cortisol produced by the adrenal glands that usually is due to a tumor in the pituitary or in the adrenal glands. Well, after it was synthesized for this purpose to be used in Cushing syndrome, it was discovered to also act as a progesterone antagonist. And what does that mean? It means that it blocks receptors for for progesterone. Now, progesterone is the so-called pregnancy hormone. It's a steroid in terms of chemical classification, and it has the role of preparing the lining of the uterus for implantation of a fertilized egg. Without progesterone uh, activity, um, uh, without this activity of, of progesterone, the egg cannot be implanted, and it will be expelled. Uh, mifepristone is usually followed by taking another drug, misoprostol, which causes contraction of the uterus and helps expel its contents. And uh, it, as I said, this has been used for over 23 years with very, very few uh, complications. So if someone wants to ban this drug, uh, do it on other basis, not on the basis that it is not safe to use because it is. I should also mention that um, mifepristone is not the same as the Plan B. Uh, Plan B is a, a, a different chemical. Uh, it's uh, Levonor- uh, Levonorgestrel, which is uh, one of the ingredients in the, the contraceptive pill. And uh, you can take this after unprotected sex uh, for up to five days, but it works best uh, if you take it soon after the unprotected uh, adventure. And uh, it has a very high chance of, of preventing uh, pregnancy because it prevents ovulation. But it has to be done soon after the event. And again, this uh, is uh, safe. There are virtually no complications uh, associated with uh, with Plan B. So that's to uh, bring you up to date a little bit on uh, uh, you know, on, on the uh, controversy about mifepristone. And when it comes to science, there really is no controversy. And so if they want to debate whether or not, uh, uh, you know, the use of a medical uh, abortion drug is ethical, yeah, that's a different question. But don't try to get rid of this drug by saying that it doesn't work or that it isn't safe because that is uh, is just not true. Okay, uh, I'm just looking to see if we have any answers uh, yet. Uh, no, I don't have any answers yet to my question about the Great Crystal Palace Exhibit of 1851 with the fountain, huge fountain made of four tons of pure glass. I want to know what it is that was flowing out of it. Uh, someone believes that uh, it was chocolate, no, you can see chocolate fountains uh, at weddings these days and uh, other such events, but no, there was no chocolate fountain at the Great Crystal Palace exhibit in 1851. And uh, also, um, I did get uh, an attempt at the answer to the other question about the Italian anatomist, uh, Gabriele Fallopio, and what he invented. And I asked that question because I knew that it would trigger the wrong answer. And indeed, the wrong answer is a condom. Uh, he did not invent the uh, the condom. Uh, the sheath that he invented was not to be used during intercourse. Uh, it was to be used after intercourse as a protection against uh, syphilis. So a man who had intercourse with a woman, he suspected of being infected with the french disease uh syphilis which is the way that syphilis was called he would put this sheath over his uh, penis after intercourse and leave it there for several hours and that was supposed to destroy the infectious matter that might have entered the skin and you know this this is not quite as ridiculous as it it sounds because um uh, syphilis is of course a bacterial infection so that uh, an antibacterial substance could have had some effect. I don't know what sort of herbs he would have uh, soaked his uh, uh, sheath in, uh, but it's not likely to have had any kind of an effect on uh, on syphilis. But I, I ask that question because you know th- there is a common belief out there that uh, Fallopio invented the the condom, which he he did not do. Uh, there were uh, all kinds of you know primitive condoms that have been used throughout the ages the ancient egyptians supposedly made a condom from from gold uh, gold is extremely malleable if you beat gold uh, you can beat it into a very 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 thin sheet uh, in fact um, if you have a piece of gold which is about the size of a matchbox you can pound that uh, until it would cover a tennis court I know it's hard to believe but this actually has been uh, demonstrated so they were able to make uh, sheaths out of uh, uh, gold and then uh, of course there were all kinds of attempts to to make uh, condoms from the intestines of of animals and uh, it was only in the late 1800s after goodyear found a way to uh, uh, make latex uh, by reacting natural rubber with sulfur it was then that the rubber condom was uh, was introduced. So there you go. Uh, Fallopio did, of course, describe the fallopian tubes, but he did not invent the condom. Hey, I, I'm uh, getting ready to give a a, a talk to the uh, Supreme Court justices of the Maritimes, and uh, they asked me to give a talk on junk science and especially junk science in in the courtroom. And so I've been, you know, looking through some of the literature trying to find some interesting cases. And there are some amazing frivolous lawsuits, you know, that have been launched. Let me just uh, uh give you a couple of examples here. This one was in California, and the woman sued uh the jelly bean company, uh, Jelly Belly, for using the term evaporated cane juice instead of the word sugar in its jelly beans. And uh, she claimed uh, that this was fraudulent, that the company was misleading consumers about how much sugar the snack actually contained. But the fact is that the nutritional label on the jelly beans actually clearly states the amount of uh, of sugar per serving. So anyway, that, that case was dismissed. Uh, then there was a case about the um, foot-long sandwich And Subway was advertising this, that they have a foot-long sandwich. And it turned out to be only 11 inches, an inch too short. And uh, this uh, resulted in a class action lawsuit. And uh, the company promised to make its rolls 12 inches. And... uh, the attorneys, of course, benefit from such uh, lawsuits. They, in this particular case, they got five hundred twenty thousand dollars in fees. Uh, but um, this case was also dis- dismissed as being uh, frivolous. <laughs> and here's another interesting one about Red Bull. You know, Red Bull's famous slogan: "Red Bull gives you wings." And that got the company some trouble. There was a class action lawsuit accused the company of having misleading ads and making false claims. Plaintiffs said the energy drink did not give people wings, even figuratively speaking. That is, they didn't feel energized. They said the company lacked evidence to claim the beverage could improve one's focus. And in this case, Red Bull settled out of court and agreed to pay $640,000, because in fact, Red Bull does not give you wings. Uh, then there was uh, another fascinating case uh, launched against the anheuser Bush company, and this goes back a while goes back to nineteen ninety three when a guy Richard Overton sued anheuser Bush for false advertising after he drank a six pack of Bud light and the beer failed to produce visions of beautiful women on a sandy beach, like he saw in the <coughs> in the advertisements. And he saw $10,000 in damages, claiming that Bud Light deceptive marketing caused him emotional distress. Amazing. Yeah, this, of course, uh, was also uh, dismissed. But it's, uh, it re- <coughs> excuse me, it, it really is surprising that, you know, these cases actually go to court and they get argued in, in, in court. And these are the, you know, so-called frivolous uh, lawsuits, Okay, I still don't have an answer to my, uh, uh query about what flowed in the Great Crystal Palace, uh, uh, fountain in 1851. Someone suggested water. That's getting closer, but not exactly tap water. That should be, you know, pretty good clue. Um, advertising, uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of humorous advertising out there, but there are also some very very annoying ads. And uh, <clears throat> it's been said that advertising is the art of making whole lies out of half truths, and food producers are very adept at meeting this challenge. But uh, the Center for Science and the Public Interest is a, a non-profit use organization and uh, they uh take them to court on some of these questionable marketing practices. And sometimes they even manage to use the legal system to bring about a change. I tell you an interesting one here. Um uh CSPI supported a class action lawsuit against uh Dr. Pepper Snapple Group for advertising three beverages, seven up cherry antioxidant, mixed berry antioxidant and pomegranate antioxidants in a misleading fashion. Uh, these were uh, introduced in 2009, and they featured pic- pictures of cherries, blackberries, cranberries, raspberries, pomegranates on the label, but they contained no fruit or any fruit juice. The beverages also prominently featured the word antioxidant on the bottle, implying that the antioxidants of the product came from berries. But well, the actual ingredients listed on the berry drink were filtered carbonated water, high fructose corn syrup, citric acid, potassium benzoate, natural flavors, and red number 40. Supposedly the antioxidants were to be found in the natural flavors, I guess. In the cherry beverage, vitamin E was added, and that would justify the antioxidant claim, but of course it, you know, that wasn't coming from the fruits. So leaving aside the question of whether supplemental antioxidants have any health benefit, the fact is that whatever antioxidants may have been present in these beverages were present in trivial amounts. That did not stop a particularly egregious ad for the Cherry 7-Up that claimed its vitamin A content, and I'm, I'm going to quote this, helps fight acne and prevent skin damage from ultraviolet rays, and it's even proven to help prevent skin cancer. There's no proof that vitamin E does any of these and to suggest such health benefits for a drink with a trace of vitamin E and loaded with sugar, well, that's an outrage. As a result of the lawsuit, the company removed these beverages from the market but claimed that their decision had nothing to do with the lawsuit. Right. right. The same organization uh, also sued General Mills for misleading consumers with its Cheerios protein cereal by suggesting that it was a better source of protein than the original Cheerios, and for not declaring that it had a much higher sugar content than the original. Well, two tricks were used to claim a higher protein content. The serving size was listed as 1.3 cups for the protein version, and only one cup for the regular. Then a close look at the fine print on the claim of 11 grams of protein on the front of the box reveals that this includes the milk that would be consumed with the cereal. There's a bit of soy protein in the cereal, but... It's insignificant. What is not insignificant is the 17 grams of sugar added to the cereal. As a result of the lawsuit, a settlement was reached requiring General Mills to stop adding the 4 grams of protein from milk to the 7 grams of protein from the cereal when it states the protein content on the front panel of Cheerios protein boxes. General Mills was also required to state more prominently on labels for Cheerios protein that the cereal is sweetened. The company decided that meeting these requirements would crimp sales, since the misleading claims were the crux of the advertising for Cheerios protein, and General Mills decided to just discontinue the product. As far as the original Cheerios goes, it contains almost no sugar and is one of the better cereals, but you know, if you're looking for a protein boost, the cereals are not the, the way to go. But uh, I think it's, you know, reasonable to, to think that, that people assume that uh, if something is advertised as, you know, Cheerios protein, that it has a significant amount of protein uh, in there, which uh, was not the case. So they ended up discontinuing the product. So th- I'm, I'm not... I'm not going to knock Cheerios. I mean, Cheerios. I think you know when you look and get all the cereals, one of the better cereals. It has fiber and does low sugar content. But you know they did make this attempt to to essentially boost sales by what amounts to false advertising. I see from the comments that you like these uh, little stories about the frivolous lawsuits. I'll give you another couple. Uh, the parents of a Danbury High School student said their son suffered hearing loss after one of his teachers slammed her hand on his desk to wake him up during a math class. The family sued the school, the school board, and the city. But apparently the case fell on deaf ears and it collapsed. But the most ridiculous one that I've come across was um, a lawsuit based on the satisfaction guaranteed promise of a dry cleaner. A guy sued a dry cleaner, get this, for $54 million for allegedly misplacing his pants. How did it come to this? Because he said, satisfaction guaranteed. And uh, he looked uh, to see how long this um, uh, particular dry cleaner had been opened and that they should have been fined for every day uh, that they were open and they advertise satisfaction guaranteed because they did not guarantee his satisfaction this case was a big deal it drew national attention especially because the uh, the defendants were korean immigrants and the uh, plaintiff was a judge believe it or not and he was suing them uh, really quite uh, unbelievable but true story a lawsuit for fifty-four million dollars for allegedly misplacing his his pants. Anyway, uh, uh, obviously the the court found against him, and he was ordered to pay the court costs uh, that were borne by the uh, dry cleaner. There are amazing things out there. So I did get a correct answer finally to uh, the the fountain. Yes, it was Schweppes carbonated water. And Schweppes was the first ever commercial uh, bottled carbonated uh, water. I guess we could call it the first ever soft drink. <clears throat> Let me tell you a little story about this. We're going back to 1874, when 35 men solemnly gathered at a gravesite in Northumberland, Pennsylvania. They had come to lay the foundations for the American Chemical Society which would eventually become the largest scientific society in the world. Why did they assemble in such a somber setting? Because in America, there was no place symbolically more appropriate for this event than the grave of Joseph Priestley. Priestley was born in England, 1733, and became a Unitarian minister. A chance meeting with Benjamin Franklin kindled his interest in science and spurred him to write a book on the history of electricity. Although he became more and more interested in science, Priestley still regarded the ministry as his primary calling. An opening in a Unitarian church in Leeds gave him the opportunity to launch his career as a preacher. By luck, it also gave him the opportunity to launch his scientific career. Priestley's home in Leeds happened to be next to a brewery, which gave off plenty of vapors. He became interested in these airs, as he called them, particularly in the one that was responsible for the bubbles in beer. This fixed air he recognized as the same gas that made certain naturally occurring spring waters effervescent. Health resorts in Europe were serving such fizzy waters as supposed cures for various illnesses, and Priestley began to wonder whether or not water could somehow have an artificial fizz added to it. But Joseph Black... Scottish chemist had already shown that fixed air could be produced by the action of acids on marble. Marble, of course, is calcium carbonate. So Priestley combined sulfuric acid and chalk, which is also calcium carbonate, to form carbon dioxide, although he, of course, did not recognize the gas as such. He collected the gas in a pig's bladder and found a way to use it to carbonate water and why a pig's bladder because there were no no balloons at that time and a pig bladder served very well as you know a a gas collecting device he was awarded the royal society's prestigious copley medal for his publication which was called directions for impregnating water with fixed air soda water as the fizzy stuff was called became very popular It was taken along on ocean voyages because it tasted better than the usual stored stagnant water. It also developed a false reputation as a preventative against scurvy and other diseases. So the water was actually sold in apothecary shops. But John Newth, a Scottish physician, complained that the use of a pig bladder imparted an off flavor to the water. To solve the problem, he developed a glass apparatus for carbonating water. This uh, found widespread use in shops and homes. And uh, this really was the forerunner of the soda stream. Today, of course, uh, we actually use uh, compressed carbon dioxide gas uh, to, to put the fizz into water. But in those days, uh, they uh, did it with sulfuric acid and uh, uh, chalk or marble. Anyway, uh, Priestley's paper came to the attention of a young German watchmaker in Geneva, Switzerland, who would ultimately bring priestly science to the masses. His name was Johann Jakob Schwepp. And after further experimentation, Schwepp was able to simplify carbonation. He used uh, sodium bicarbonate and tartaric acid. And you probably recognize those because those are the components of uh, uh, baking uh, powder. Right In baking powder, what you want is the formation of carbon dioxide gas. And you can do that by sodium bicarbonate and tartaric acid. So that's the story behind uh, Schweppes, which, as I said, was the first um, uh, carbonated water ever sold to the public. And uh, this giant fountain in 1851 at the Crystal Palace uh, spewed out carbonated water, which was quite a miracle in those days. mean the crystal palace itself was really quite something um it was um essentially like a giant greenhouse made of glass panels it had an iron scaffolding but it was huge inside the size was several football fields and was uh you know at that time it was a real miracle of, of um of architecture and um the uh uh, exhibit really was designed to show the superiority of English industry to others. And there were all kinds of exhibits about steam engines and, you know, other advances, uh, uh, industrial uh, advances. And um, uh, the um, uh, whole idea really came from Prince Albert, who was que- uh, Queen Victoria's husband. Prince Albert was a very big supporter of, of science and he thought it would be a good idea to get the uh, public interested in, um, in science and in industry. And that was the motivation behind this 1851 Crystal Palace exhibit. Uh, after uh, the exhibit, the um, gigantic Crystal Palace was actually disassembled. And was taken to a different uh, different site in London. And the area became known as Crystal Palace. And as you know, the, one of the uh, football teams in London is called Crystal Palace because they play their home games in that area. Unfortunately, the actual Crystal Palace is not there anymore. It uh, it burned down. I think it was in in uh, 1923 that it uh, it burned down, which is a a real shame. But uh, of course, you can go online and you can see uh, some uh, wonderful pictures of the uh, of the Crystal Palace both from the outside and from the uh, inside. Uh, Queen Victoria visited many, many times, sometimes even just by herself. And, you know, in in those days, I I think you did not have to have a a huge security detail for the uh, queen to go out. She would go and just walk around the uh, exhibit uh, area. And uh, it was... um, if you take a look at some of the pictures online, you'll see the the amazing scope of this exhibit, how large it was. And uh, you can see pictures of the fountain as well. And uh, you can also see the fountain on the uh, Schweppes logo. The company's logo has a, sort of a stylized version of the fountain. On uh, May 11th, we're going to be uh, sponsoring a, a film, about vaccination, how vaccines are developed, some of the controversies. Uh, it's really a neat film. Uh, we're going to be doing this in Moist Hall at McGill. And uh, more importantly, after the movie, we're going to have a discussion with the two producers of the movie, which is going to be very, very interesting. Uh, if you would like to join us, um, All you have to do is register because we need to know how many people are coming. It's free, of course, but you can go on our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS, mcgill.ca slash OSS, and you'll see there how to register. And of course, uh, you can also find loads and loads of information about, you know, anything that you can think of on our website. And you can also sign up for our uh, free weekly newsletter. So it's at, uh, McGill.ca slash O-S-S. I had a question about, uh, uh, given the sort of the problems we faced with the recent uh, storm when we lost power here in Montreal, how did people before refrigeration uh, preserve food and how long can meat and eggs last? Well, uh, there were all kinds of ways to preserve food before, uh, mostly with ice. And believe it or not, uh when uh, I was a kid in Hungary, we had uh, uh well it wasn't really a, a refrigerator. It it looked like a refrigerator, but it had a compartment in it and where the ice man would come and put a large block of ice in there. And uh you know, they would last uh, you know several days and that's how you kept food cold. As far as eggs go, uh in Europe eggs are never refrigerated. In the grocery stores they're they're on the shelves so you don't need to refrigerate uh, eggs. Uh here uh they tend to put them in the fridge because the eggs are washed industrially and that removes the protective uh, fatty layer on the outside of the egg. So this the shell becomes more permeable to to bacteria. But in Europe uh the eggs are are uh, just on the shelves in the uh, grocery store. As far as meat goes, uh, cooked meat, of course, can last several uh, several days. And uh, raw meat, depending on the temperature, um, generally not more than a, a day or two. Uh, after that, there's a chance of bacterial contamination. But, of course, most of the time when you cook it, you also kill the bacteria. But it was, uh, you know, with... with uh, ice that uh uh we were you know preserving our our foods and i remember that very well the you know the Iceman cometh all right thomas edison who um you know i've spoken to you about many times before because he was such an interesting uh person uh He's been, you know, said to have been the greatest inventor ever. Uh, certainly he had loads and loads of, of patents. And, uh, uh, you know, Edison, though, wasn't exactly a, a scientist because he was really only interested in making things that had a practical application. He, he wasn't all that interested in how things worked. He just wanted to make them work. And he, of course, was the first one to build an electrical distribution system. And he did this in New York. And he had to come up with a way to measure how much electricity a consumer was using. And he designed an electric meter. And this was really very, very clever. This original electric meter consisted of two copper plates that were dipped into a solution of copper sulfate. Now, Edison's direct current passed through the solution meaning that one of the copper plates served as the positive electrode, the other one as the negative. And this meant that positive copper ions from solution were attracted to the negative electrode and they would plate out. At the same time, copper from the positive electrode dissolved in the solution. The net result was a change in the weight of the plates in proportion to the amount of electricity that passed through the solution. So meter readers would then periodically come Switch off the power, remove the copper plates, replace them with new ones. The used plates would be taken away and weighed. On the basis of the change in weight, the customer would be charged for the electricity that was used. Pretty elaborate, but pretty clever. Today, of course, uh, we don't have to rely on stuff like that because electric currents can be very easily uh, measured. But, you know, this was not the Middle Ages. This was, you know, relatively recent. This was this was just you know over a hundred years ago. So Edison was really, really quite uh, something. Let me tell you another little story about a Texas teenager poisoned her father because he would not let her go and live with her mother. The girl had read that barium was poisonous, and stole some barium acetate from her school's chemistry lab. She put a spoonful into her father's burrito and beans. Unfortunately for her father, the girl had stolen a soluble barium compound, which proved to be lethal. Had she taken barium sulfate, nothing would have happened. Barium sulfate is actually used in medicine. It's opaque to x-rays. This is the white stuff a patient is given to drink before uh, gastrointestinal x-rays. Uh, barium sulfate is extremely insoluble in water and therefore cannot get into the bloodstream and is eventually excreted in feces. Barium acetate, on the other hand, is extremely poisonous because it readily dissolves in the blood. And that is what the the girl used. So uh, different compounds of the same uh, element can have diverse solubilities. And it can make a, a very significant uh, difference. I mean, solubility, of course, is, is uh, one of the most important factors when you take a design of any kind of chemical reaction. Because you need to have the reagents dissolve in some sort of solvent. And um, very often the, the solvents that are used to carry out uh, chemical reactions are what we call the organic solvents. And that is, which are based upon uh, carbon and, you know, we things like uh, chloroform and uh, carbon tetrachloride, uh, tetrachloroethylene, trichloroethylene. These are the classic solvents in which organic compounds are dissolved. But uh, the problem with doing chemical reactions in these solvents is that most of these solvents are, are toxic. And also, what do you do with them after you've carried out the chemical reaction? And, uh, you know, these are not the kind of things that you can just dump into the environment. Today, um, as, you know, I've mentioned to you many times, uh, we are trying to practice what we call green chemistry. That is to carry out reactions in the most efficient way, to use the safest possible substances, and to try to use uh, water as a solvent in chemical reactions, but of course that is not always possible because uh not everything is soluble in in water so uh, green chemistry is you know the hot topic uh, these days in in uh, chemical circles the idea that you want to carry out reactions in such a way that you get the fewest side products you use the s- least toxic substances and uh you make sure that in the laboratory you have the you know appropriate uh safety equipment and ventilation etc well that's it for today uh and you learned some stuff here about about uh seltzer water about schweps uh about some crazy lawsuits and uh again go to our website mcgill.ca/oss and you can sign up for the movie viewing and for a newsletter And we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.